If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Lots of election-related news to talk about this morning on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Layla Atassi, Laura Johnston, and Jane Cahoon. I hope you all had a wonderful weekend. The weather could not have been more gorgeous. Oh, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Except for that one thunderstorm. Yeah. Was, it was short. Was... Quick. Short. Yeah. Yeah, it was very quick. Man, it was, I mean, to have cool air in the first weekend of August, it's nice. Dry, mostly. Uh, I hope everybody got outside because it will most assuredly get hot again before it cools off. Let's begin. Where does now officially former Cleveland City Councilman Ken Johnson stand in the rogues gallery that is the list of council members of convicted of crimes while serving in office? Leila Tassi, one is too many, right? When you elect people, <laughs> you expect them to be honest. How many do we have since 2000? So since 2000, Johnson makes five. So <laughs> as we know, you know, federal jury convicted Johnson Friday, 15 counts of, of corruption related crimes. But, you know, he's only the latest inductee into what uh, I called uh, in my story, the Cal- Cleveland City Council Hall of Shame. It turns <laughs> out that since 2000, we've had four other members. One of them is current councilman Joe Jones. Jones had resigned his council seat in August 2005, just hours after pleading guilty to a mail fraud charge involving a $5,000 interest-free loan that he got from Nate Gray. Listeners, if you're a longtime follower of Cleveland politics, you might remember Gray as the politically connected businessman who was later convicted as part of that wide-ranging municipal corruption probe. Jones had failed to disclose the loan on his state-required financial statement, and Though prosecutors argued that the no interest loan showed that Gray had this pattern of cultivating people to use in corrupt ways in the future, there wasn't an allegation that Jones had had performed any illegal activities. And and he eventually did repay that loan in full. But he served six months of house arrest for that. And he got his record expunged to come back to council eventually. And he and he did shake him down. I mean, everybody was was looked at it like, what a fool. You're going to go and shake down a guy for a loan. If you're going to be corrupt, go for the big dollars. Right. But he went in and he shook him down for the loan. And the feds were listening because they had tapped Nick Gray's line and then he got caught on the mail fraud charge it wasn't it wasn't nothing i mean he did abuse his office but because he later had the record sealed he could run again who else is on your hall of shame (laughs) so the next was robert j white the third bobby white a 12-year veteran of council at the time he resigned in december 2008 a day after being charged with accepting a 500 dollars bribe he represented the Union Miles and Turney neighborhoods. He, he took the money in exchange for helping to get city-owned Cleveland Public Power to restore electricity to a business. He also pleaded guilty to some unrelated ethics violation. That, that in, involved hiring his wife and stepson to perform office work and, and paying them about $7,000 over several u- years using money that was later reimbursed by council. That kind of sounds a lot like one of the Johnson scams, Ken Johnson scams. Um, White was sentenced to 18 months in prison, so which is interesting because the next 
example, Sabra Pierce Scott, in my opinion, I feel like you know, I mean, she she got off a lot lighter than that for similar crimes. She resigned her council seat in April 2009 amid this federal corruption probe. She was she initially said she was departing from council for personal reasons. But then two years later, after she resigned, Scott was charged and pleaded guilty to accepting a bribe from a contractor who was embroiled in the investigation that was ongoing while she was in council. She admitted taking $2,000 from the contractor and soliciting a job for her son while she was on council. She right. was sentenced Another... to three years, three years probation and eight months of house arrest, which is such a lighter sentence than what Bobby White got for taking less money. I don't know how it works. I mean, maybe, I don't know. And she and she was shaking people down. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, th- I agree. She got off light. And then Frank Jackson hired her. I mean, this corrupt right. person that abused her job, abused the trust of the public, is still a city employee. That one That's continues right. to boggle my mind. Right, All right. right. One and more. So the one more, um, this is the most recent, Joe Simperman. He had resigned from council in 2016 but he pleaded guilty in 2018 to 26 misdemeanor counts of having an unlawful interest in a public contract. Those were charges that stemmed from accusations that he had voted to approve city contracts for the design firm that his wife works for or worked for and that he once he once served for a tr- as a trustee for that company. At the time of his sentencing, Simperman said he didn't know that the votes he was casting were improper, but he admitted that he should have known and said that he'd give anything to go back and recuse himself from those votes. But he was sentenced to a year's probation, $10,000 fine, 100 hours of community service for all of that. Today, he he is uh, the director of, of Global Cleveland. Yeah. And what so. made no sense about that was that Joe regularly recused himself from things involving that contract, his, his wife's firm. And there was no doubt that that contract was going to be right. approved by his colleagues. Those contracts, just, yeah, right. It they seems they like cast it was, unanimously. He didn't need to cast those votes. Right. It was a reckless, stupid thing for him to do. And then he fought the ethics investigation instead of just saying, oops, I screwed up. I'm really sorry. You know, and it became a, a criminal case. I mean, he kind of blew that in every way you can blow it. But what Ken Johnson did is the high, the high order of corruption. He fleeced the taxpayers in any number of schemes for years. And the only reason he has been brought to account is because of the reporting by Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer by our former colleague, Mark Namick. And right. I'm, I'm kind of struck now that it's over, now that, there, you know, despite him saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, he did it. It was the most convincing case. It only took four hours for a jury to convict him. So then you sit back and you say, how did Kevin Kelly, the council president, and Martin Sweeney, the former council president, not stop this? How did Frank Jackson's accounting department not raise a red flag because he was not justifying his expenses? The, the, the city auditors didn't catch it. And then the state audits Cleveland's books every year. Dave Yost and his predecessors didn't flag this. We're not supposed to be the official check and balance on the spending of tax money, but Absent us, Ken Johnson still still stealing from the taxpayers. I don't understand how that happens. Yeah, I don't understand either. And 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 how long was this going on? I mean, obviously there's some statute of limitations that would that that would you know limit how far back they could reach. But geez, he's been in office for four decades. How much money? How much money did he take from from taxpayers? 
Oh my god. And he's gonna go to prison for ten years and he's seventy-five. So it's uh this is a you know, pretty much it could be a life sentence. The thing that surprised me was his defiance to the end. I mean, they had him dead to rights. Mark Namick had him dead to rights. I mean, the stories we did basically said this man committed a lot of crimes. And I, I just was I'm surprised that he took it to the end. I'm sure that the feds sat down with him at some point and said, look, here's all the evidence against you. You ought to take a deal and and get the best the best you can get. And he fought it to the end. I, right. I think it's just hubris that he's always managed to talk his way out of stuff. Uh, I mean, he was reelected right after. Right. After right. Amick started to write about this stuff. So. And he know. might have I, been uh, headed toward re-election this time. I mean, he was running again against a very crowded field, and and I'm sure that he was polling well, or that is he had he still held on to quite a bit of support in his ward. Uh, so well, it's crazy. You know, we we can't emphasize corruption enough around here. We've had a lot of it in Northeast Ohio, and that's why we give it so much publicity. It's to shake up the public officials who ask for our trust so that they don't fleece the taxpayers like Ken Mm -hmm. Johnson did. He deserves his prison term. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are housing advocates expecting to see in Cleveland Housing Court today now that the national moratorium on evictions has expired? Laura Johnston, all through the pandemic, we talked about the coming eviction crisis and all the work the government did to provide rent assistance. The county provided millions of dollars for it and this moratorium in place by the CDC. It's all over. And so what do we think will happen today and in the next few weeks? Yeah, the the housing experts are expecting a flood of eviction procedures in the housing court. And so this has been in place since September 2020. They were hoping that it would get extended again, but couldn't get it done. And so these CDC stays are over, and that required tenants to deliver a written declaration to their landlord invoking this moratorium to remain in the rental property. And they could still be evicted for other reasons, but paying their rent, they they could stay. And so they had to have a, a set of facts they had to attest to, and there would be a stay on the case that kind of just stopped it in its tracks. And so now, starting today, landlords can provide an affidavit of rental assistance detailing this de- payment history of tenants, any rental assistance applications, and they can file the, the paperwork to get it started to basically end these people and kick them out. Um, CHN Housing Partners has seen an increase in applications for rental assistance just the last three months. They went between like 1,300 and 1,400 to more than 1,700 for each month. And they're expecting just a flood in August. And uh, so, yeah, it's going to be up to the courts whether they're willing to push the landlords to accept rental assistance funds, uh, which are still be available to allow tenants to stay where they are, but they don't have to. Although it sounds like the court is making the landlords take the extra step of proving they've at least tried to help their tenants get rental assistance, which is a plus, right? Because because if they haven't, if they haven't worked with their tenants at all, the the court might be slower to evict them. But it does sound like there are a whole lot of of, uh, landlords that haven't been getting paid, which is a hardship on the landlords. And they're finally going to be able to start removing people. 
uh, we'll we'll be paying attention to see how many cases get filed there, but it could be a very busy place in the in the coming weeks. We've written about this before, obviously, but a lot of times in the past, you know, landlords would have lawyers and tenants would not. Well, so the county gave a million dollars to the Legal Aid Society to represent people in eviction cases. So y- you can get help if you are facing eviction. You don't have to just go and, you know, accept it. So there are routes, and I hope that people find the help that they can get because yeah, we don't want to see a whole flood of homeless people ending up on the street. That's not going to, it's not going to be good for anybody, especially, you know, that that these families can get help hopefully. All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why might Ohio governor Mike DeWine suddenly have very little to worry about regarding a primary Republican challenge in his reelection bid next year? Jane Cahoon, we've been talking, speculating, might he get challenged from the far right by people who argue Mike DeWine is not conservative enough, something that seemed unfathomable four years ago, <laughs> but that's what's happened in politics. Jim Renacci, who is a, a flamethrower supreme, very much in the line of Josh Mandel, uh, has has announced he will challenge him, and, and we thought that might be serious. But based on what we saw last week, Jim Renacci is coming across like a bit of a joke. Well, it's just, I'll give you one word here, money. Uh, it, you know, it's, it is it uh, is still early. The election's not till next year. So this isn't necessarily to say that DeWine is cruising toward re-election, but his campaign is definitely in a comfortable position money-wise. We, we had a campaign finance reporting deadline on Friday that showed DeWine raised more than $3 million in this reporting period, which covers the first half of this year. And he has $6.5 million in his campaign uh, bank account. Um, And as you said, he does face some vocal or whatever you call it, passionate, strenuous opposition from the further right factions of his party who are who are angry with him. And um, let's not forget the House Bill 6 scandal also makes him somewhat vulnerable. But uh, as you said, Renacci, um, who, you know, you'd expect to be I mean, he's a pretty prominent person, a former congressman, entrepreneur. He's run statewide before. He had a really anemic fundraising period. He raised just under $22,000. Now, in fairness, Renacci just declared for the race in June and hasn't been raising money that long. But he's been laying the groundwork for this bid for governor for a couple of years now. So this is going to raise questions about his uh, viability. Just as a comparison, a guy named Joe Blystone, a cattle rancher from central Ohio, who guy with a big Santa Claus beard who's developed this kind of niche social media following, He's he raised $258,800. So, and the Democratic candidates, um, Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley and Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley, uh, raised, you know, over a million bucks each and have over a million in their in their cash on hand. So um, now Renacci has loaned his campaign a million dollars. But if this is anything like his Senate campaign that he ran against Sherrod Brown in 2018, he 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 might not be spending much of his own money. But he, he did tell Andrew Tobias that he would not only be willing to spend his money if necessary, but he's he's just getting started and he plans to build a strong uh, fundraising network. There's there's two things I think that are in, interesting about there's a plane going over somewhere. Two things that are interesting about Renacy worth talking about. One, he he kind of did the two-face thing, right? He had spent years in Congress, his short not many years, but some years in Congress portraying himself as the guy who works across the aisle, the guy who has 
friends who are Democrats and they can get things done. And then after Donald Trump rose, he went the complete other way and became mm -hmm. a total Trumpster. The to, you know, the Democrats are bad. Republicans are great. But the further right I can. I mean, it just became ridiculous how far he switched. And I'm not sure voters like that. I've heard from a lot of Republicans who complain mightily about Josh Mandel. I can't stand him because he did some of the same kinds of things. Right. The other thing, though, is that Renacy has glommed onto the HB6 scandal, that, that he knows that Mike DeWine has some vulnerability there. Andrew Tobias wrote the story a week and a half ago analyzing how close that's moved into DeWine's circles. DeWine signed the bill. DeWine championed the bill. Uh, DeWine did very little or nothing. He when, hired Sam Randazzo. <laughs> he hired, right. He had Sam Randazzo, who, you know, took the four million. He he did nothing to stop the thuggery that was going on when the when people were trying to get signatures on petitions. And as the governor of the state, he should be ensuring order when it comes to that kind of thing. So Renacci is keeps sending us and I guess the other media press releases calling for investigations of that. Now, that's going nowhere. He's not landing a blow. <laughs> okay. But it ultimately I mean, if this gets closer and closer to Mike DeWine, he has something right. Right. And, let me, could I point out two things? One is that um, First Energy was one of Jim Renacci's top contributors when he was in Congress. <laughs> so I just want to mention that, okay? Uh, that's the, good. the other thing is Andrew's story raised another really intriguing possibility. If you, you know, it, as opposed to someone like Renacci, who was Mr. Bipartisanship before, uh, if the if this further right faction is looking for a darling, it could be Congressman Warren Davidson from uh, he's an arch conservative from Southwest Ohio, and he's a big ally of Congressman Jim Jordan, who of course is a major Trump backer through and through, and has access to a really solid national fundraising network. Now Davidson told Andrew that he's considering it strongly. So, you know whether Renacci would drop out is very questionable. But if these if these dyed in the wool, you know, hard right conservatives are looking for a savior here, like Davidson could be their guy. Okay. Fascinating. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who has the most money to spend on the race for Cleveland mayor? And who has raised the most since the beginning of the year? Leila Tassi, money will make a difference in this race with so many candidates in it trying to get attention. Money is what will get them attention, as we've seen from the congressional race. So where do we stand in the battle for the money? Well, City Council President Kevin Kelly still maintains that lead in that category. But Seth Richardson reports that two opponents outraced Kelly in the past six months. So they're gaining on him. Kelly had more than $537,000 in his coffers, nearly 200000 more than his next closest competitor. And that was after he raised nearly 213000 this reporting period. But Cleveland City Councilman Bashir Jones raised more than $367,000 this year. And at the filing deadline, he had nearly $329,000 uh, on hand. And nonprofit executive Justin Bibb, he also raised more than Kelly this period with, with $241,000. And he ended the period with uh, more than $208,000. Zach Reed, he raised a bunch of money, but then he also spent a bunch of money. So he's left with just $35,000 in the bank. And I was kind of surprised to see that former mayor, Dennis Kucinich, who a lot of people would say is the most well-known of the candidates, he raised just more than 38000 and he ended the period with less than $37,000 in the bank. Um, who else here can we talk about? Oh, well, Senator I, I think, yeah. 
I think the Kucinich, I mean, that he has not been raising money. The, the word on him coming into the last couple of years was, hey, he has this national fundraising he can do because he ran for president and people like Sean Penn supported him. That's completely gone. He's just not right. raising any money. And it does raise some questions about whether he has the support that people believe he has. Um, you were going to mention Sandra Williams. Oh, Sandra Williams, yes. She she raised just more than 96000 And if you add that to the 116000 she brought from her state Senate campaign account and then deduct the 118 she spent so far, she ended the period with just less than 94000 on hand. However, her, her list of campaign expenses didn't include 24000 in donations that she made to charities from, from money connected to First Energy executives and employees. And then the final candidate uh, was West Park attorney Ross DeBello. He, he rounds out the group having raised about 5700 while putting in another 4000 of his own money. And he ended the period with just more than 5600 So, you know, here's, yeah, here's what I think is important and, and kind of telling. Justin Bibb had more donations from Cleveland donors than all five of the other candidates combined. And even though those donations were small by comparison to what you know the business community and PACs are able to contribute, those are those are voters, <laughs> and, it, and it should give you an idea of the kind of grassroots enthusiasm that Bib has really been able to drum up during this campaign. Yeah, he has he has real momentum, and uh, it'll it, the the this will kick up after Tuesday. A lot of attention has been paid to the congressional race, but after Tuesday. When that ends, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more attention paid to the mayor's race. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With the Football Hall of Fame inductions happening this week in Canton, what's going on down there to make that attraction a bigger draw? Laura Johnston, we took a pretty deep look at all of the development and things going on. What did we learn? I feel like this was one of those things that you're like, oh, is it ever really going to happen? It's kind of a pie-in-the-sky idea. I believe at one point we were talking about like a you know, a gondola down there. But, it, you know, there is real development happening in Canton. I was actually down there this spring on the brand new fields for a kids lacrosse tournament, and they are very nice. There was a lot of construction going on, a lot of fences. But this is a 900 million, 120 acre Hall of Fame village project. It's been talked about just since 2014. That's when Fawcett Stadium, which was owned by Canton City Schools and used for the annual Hall of Fame game, was in line for a major renovation. So they thought, hey, let's just go really big. So let's come up with this idea, the Disneyland of football or an NFL theme park. It was supposed to be finished in 2018, then 2020. The plan has been pared down in recent years, divided into phases, and they are now in the second phase. So the new hotel and a football-themed indoor water park likely won't be completed until 2023. But this is a big deal. I mean, we don't talk about this Hall of Fame or the induction ceremony there as much as we talk about the Rock Hall. I mean, obviously, it's not quite as close to Cleveland, but the region's expected to see a, a 1 million visitors with the um, double class of enshrinees just coming up. And that's 20 players, coaches and contributors from 2020 and 2021. It's fascinating with the the attention that is paid to the NFL, particularly in Cleveland with the Browns, that the the Hall of Fame for football doesn't get more attention from Northeast Ohio. It's unique. There's no other. This is it. And and it inducts the legends. I mean, Peyton Manning is going in this week. Um, one of one of football royalty. And so it is interesting that it doesn't get as much. We're trying to change that a little bit and put a put a spotlight on it with a whole series of stories that started over the weekend. Um, but 
but we'll it's, have, uh, can we ask the folks on the podcast how many people have been to the football hall of fame because i know my my dad has but i haven't we haven't taken our 10 year old <laughs> anybody anybody is there no, anything I, about me that suggests i might be interested <laughs> in going to the football hall of fame? I'm going to put it on my, my bucket list. So, um, but it, it is exciting to see the, all the development down there. And I guess youth sports are a huge driver of tourism dollars at this point. I mean, you look at Cedar point, they've got that whole sports thing. So, um, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll start paying more attention to it. It's, it's very centrally located to a whole lot of other draws. So yeah. Okay. You are listening to this week in the CLE. How did the leading candidates to replace Marsha Fudge in Congress spend their final campaign weekend? Jane Cahoon, this has become a bitter, bitter, ugly contest. I'm, I'm kind of surprised at just how mean-spirited it's become, and that continued a bit over the weekend. Also, I am really surprised that the Democratic County Party chairperson is getting all sorts of donations from Republicans. That one is like <laughs> the standout for me of the weekend. Yeah. So, well, OK, you, you brought up a lot there, but let's let's start with these two presumed frontrunners, Cuyahoga County Councilwoman Chantel Brown and State Senator Nina Turner. They both brought out the big names and the political heavyweights during these last minute, you know, get out the vote rallies over, over the weekend. As you said, this race has become really, really divisive. And uh, even though the polling is scant, it's 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 regarded as being close. So every vote matters here. And uh, as, as Seth Richardson pointed out in his his coverage of these weekend events, he he skipped around to a lot of places. Um, many of these headliners were not people from Northeast Ohio, but they are certainly influential people. For example, for Chantel Brown, they included a lot of the I would call them old guard Democratic politicians like South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn, who was instrumental in bringing home a victory in his state for for President Joe Biden and Congresswoman Joyce Beatty of the Columbus area, who heads the Congressional Black Caucus and Congressman Benny Thompson of of Mississippi, who's been in the news a lot lately Uh, for Turner. It was the progressive stars like Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, author and activist Cornell West, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. And of course, rapper and activist Killer Mike. <laughs> but uh, but as you said, there was really a sharp tone to the rhetoric on the part of the speakers who, and they took some really not so subtle shots at the opposing candidates. For for example, Benny Thompson, um, speaking for Chantel Brown, said, "You know, we need a good Democrat who's going to get in there and get things done and support Biden, not someone who's going to go in there and tear the place up." He said that was an obvious attempt to portray Nina Turner as a disruptor for her past criticism of the Democratic Party. And Jim Clyburn said, "You know, we don't need people who." are going to go around and talk loud and hand out slogans, but people who can be of substance. So that was pretty stinging. And then on the other side, Nina Turner's supporters promoted her as the person who really stands for something and has a history of fighting for constituents. They painted Chantel Brown as somebody who seems you know, more dependent on her political connections and who she knows rather than somebody who's out there like in the trenches working for the people. And I have to say both Mayor Frank Jackson and City Councilman Blaine Griffin spoke quite forcefully on that issue. And Bernie Sanders, of course, excited the crowd with his familiar refrains talking about all the outside money that's poured into this race and speaking to what you brought up before. He said, why is it that the drug 
companies and the insurance companies and fossil fuel industry and Wall Street and people who supported Donald Trump are pouring millions of dollars into this campaign to defeat Nina Turner. Well, you know, he, but but stop, because um, it's not just them, though. It's Roger Sinnenberg, the former Republican right. chair. It's the Haslam's gene. Right, ha- right. So right. You the would Smuckers think- and uh, Robert Kraft, the so, major Trump supporter. So wouldn't you think if you're the Democratic Party chairperson of Cuyahoga County, as Chantel Brown is, that you'd reject those? You'd say, look, 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 I don't want that support. I'm trying to say I'm the true Democrat. How much of a true Democrat can you be when your big support is coming from Republicans? That yeah, and what, what's funny is they're they're trying to portray Nina Turner as the, you know, not a good Democrat. And, <laughs> and here's the head of the Democratic Party taking Republican money, too. So, yeah, there's just a lot of dynamics that play a lot of accusations and counter accusations. I don't need to go into all of them. Um a lot of outside money. Um, so, you know, it's just <laughs> all, all I can say is Tuesday is going to be really interesting. All comes to a close tomorrow evening. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What honor did Cleveland's vaccine queens, who became famous across the country after columns about them by our very own Layla Tassi, Aww. win last week? <laughs> Layla, lay it on me. The vaccine queens are going to Disney World. (laughs) And man, do they deserve it. So everyone remembers these two, Marla Zwingy and Stacey Benny. From their incredible work this past year, they helped more than 2,300 Northeast Ohioans schedule vaccination appointments during that awful period when the shot was so elusive and the state system for finding and scheduling a shot was just a total mess. These women didn't know each other at all until they heard that the other was out there doing this work for people. So they connected on Facebook. They banded together. They worked tirelessly combing websites of pharmacies to schedule shots for people. These were total strangers. They were helping out of the goodness of their hearts and help usher us out of this pandemic. Well, the story is proof that good things do happen to good people. Disney is giving out 50 all-expense-paid trips for four worth $10,000 to people who have served their their communities dutifully this past year. And Zwingy and Benny were chosen as the very first winners of the Disney Magic Makers contest. They were nominated by the mother of a classmate of one of Zwingy's daughters. I just can't think of a pair of people who deserve this vacation more than them. The, The service that they provided saved lives, no doubt. Not only were they finding shots for seniors who were having trouble navigating this terrible patchwork of scheduling websites, but they were finding shots for the medically vulnerable too, people with extremely high risk conditions who were, or people who were undergoing chemotherapy. And, and so importantly, they managed to coordinate with Discount Drug Mart and first responders to get more than 40 homebound people vaccinated so those people could once again welcome family and friends into their homes without fear. And they were doing that while the county board of health was dragging its feet. Remember, they were squabbling over the definition of the word homebound right. for weeks and weeks. <laughs> I know. It was a disgrace throughout the pandemic. And, hey, can and they help me get the third shot? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I want oh, the booster. I, if you hand any task to these women, they will get it done. I promise you, they're I the know. most, the most. So now, now that there is more, more vaccine out there than people who are smart enough to get one, <laughs> the vaccine queens have have officially retired. But they'll be able to tell their grandkids one day about this important role that they played 
and helping us survive the pandemic. And now they get to go to Disney World. Right. This so is cool. Gorgeous. I'm so glad they're still in the news. I just love them. <laughs> I feel like we should hand off the, the quandary of how to get more people to want the vaccine to them. Like, can't, they'll come up with a solution. Right? Can they can Maybe. they run for mayor? Maybe they can run for mayor <laughs> and county executive and the governor. We got they could do anything. Let's put them all in. We got to move on. It's this week in the CLE. You know, this has been a podcast that that really emphasizes the value of journalism. I mean, absent journalism, Ken Johnson will still be fleecing the taxpayers. Absent journalism, the world might not know about the vaccine queens. Uh, it's the service we provide. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We will be back to talk about more news on Tuesday. Tuesday.